Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On the Playmakers Playbook this week, a man who had a pivotal role in one of history's great leadership masterstrokes. Joel Stransky made 22 test appearances for the Springboks, but is best remembered for slotting the winning drop goal in the final of the 1995 Rugby World Cup. He was set a stage in Nelson Mandela's plan to use the Springboks to help unite a new South Africa. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McCarvel, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. If you love your rugby, you'll know the story of the 1995 Rugby World Cup and how Nelson Mandela understood the unifying power of sport. And even if you're not into your rugby, you've quite likely seen the movie Invictus, Hollywood's take on that great moment in history. Well, Joel Stransky lived it. He was surrounded by great leaders in a great team, which did great things. And has there ever been a more important kick than his that day in Johannesburg? Stransky back in the pocket. Has the chance to drop the goal. Back it comes to Stransky. Up goes the kick. Stransky has kept his head. And with two minutes gone in the second period, Extra time, South Africa's dream is alive once more. Back it comes to use van der Westhuizen. A little knock forward, but that's it. South Africa have won the World Cup. Having been back in international rugby for less than three years. Yes, that was the kick that helped unite a nation. Joel Stransky, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Nick, thanks very much, mate. Lovely to be chatting and uh, to be on your on your podcast and I hope all is good and well your side. It is, uh, yes. Lovely to catch up. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more, obviously, about the 1995 Rugby World Cup shortly. But but first up, life in South Africa with COVID-19. How are you and, and the family? And what does the day-to-day look like? Yeah, so our, our day-to-day is... Uh, not that different really and i say that purely because we operate in from a business perspective in a space where we have emergency i have an emergency travel documents i can go from day one through proper lockdown i've been able to go anywhere do anything as a result of our business interests you know so for us as a family um my son's probably you know probably born the most of the frustration he's 19 years old and he's not he's a varsity student and he's not been able to socialize and get out and you know, go and have a few pots with his mates and chat up a few lady friends. And so, so I think he's probably the guy who's felt it the most. But And, and, and with, within that whole parameters, I think he's handled it very well. 
but I think he's handled it well because he's he's looked for the silver lining on the cloud, you know. And, and what we've done as a family, my daughter's a fifth year medical student, so she doesn't live with us. She lives near the hospitals. Um, but what we have done through lockdown is we've tried to make the most of it. You know, we've tried to bond as a family. We have dinner every night together. We do boot camp in the evenings. Um, we do a little bit of physical training. We um, once a week, every Friday night, we we have a family dinner and we dress up and we have a theme. So so it's brought us closer together. Um, but most importantly, you know, we, we, we've tried to just stay positive through this time. And, and, and it's not always easy because it's been tough in the whole world. But I think here in Africa, it might even be a little bit tougher. Um, but, but, you know, we've, uh, we've worked hard to, to bond, stay positive and, and do the best we possibly can in a tough situation. Yeah, taking that positive approach. And I can imagine that you are absolutely flogging your family because you're just about one of the fittest human beings I know. Um, <laughs> now, now you, you say about... Um, difficulties around the world and, and clearly leadership is being tested around the world um at least you don't have a president who believes injecting bleach can kill the virus but that's a, a story for another day but uh yeah, these are testing times for cyril ramaphosa and his government um how have you judged that progress throughout this pandemic so we may not have a president who believes in injecting uh, bleach, but we have a, a, a leader of this whole COVID story who believes that um, if you cut off selling cigarettes, it's better for everyone. And it's just created more drama. So don't worry, every country has their woes and every country has a government that has made some horrendous decisions at times. And ours is absolutely no different. And, and it's purely, and I can say this with an open mind and open heart, and I would defend it. It's with personal gain at stake and, and we have our own issues in this country. So it's um it's 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 not ideal, but um, yeah, I suppose we like everyone else. We deal in this COVID space. I think probably more so to the point that that um, it affects us from a day-to-day -day perspective, where there's death and there are other issues that come to the fore. And, and, and you know, we have poverty um, in Africa. I've been involved in a whole lot of the feeding schemes through my charity. You know, you see another side of what is happening out there, and it, it's not always pretty, and it's not always easy, and. Uh, and, and leadership is is a challenge. It's um, I, I would hate to be a leader in this time. I think leaders have gone through this whole circle of doing things well, doing things badly, recovering, making mistakes again. And, and I think when you are leading through a period like this, you are only remembered for the errors and not for all the good you do. Just tell me a bit about, if you can, about what you're seeing when you are doing those um those food banks. So we were due to speak earlier this week and, and, um, and you couldn't because you were out on the streets um, delivering food. Yeah. What, what are you seeing? So we, um, so, so, so now I think we, we've come to realize that a lot of people are back to work. Um, not everyone, but a lot of people who have jobs, who had jobs are back to work. There's still massive unemployment in this country and there's still uh, probably four or five million people who don't have formal employment, you know? So I think a lot of the people we were feeding in the, in the, in, sort of in the period from middle of March, April, middle of May, even towards the end of May, a lot of those people are finding ways to survive and are self-sufficient again. But the people who are not, we're seeing now through the cold spell and here, you know, in Johannesburg, it's really cold, um, sort of June, July, you know, temperatures we've had, and we've got a cold winter, um, you know, at night it's been it's been dropping to minus five, minus six degrees. Um, by day, we've had a few days where the maximum it's been eight or ten degrees. Today, it's probably up to about seventeen. Or so, um, but what I see there is, is people sleeping, you know, with with very little clothing, 
um, very little cover, no, you know, blankets that are disintegrating. Um, they're surviving on one small meal per day that they have to scrounge for. So, so for us to be out there and to be dropping food and taking clothes and blankets and, and you know, helping those people that are really well below the poverty line has, uh, has been a bit of an eye-opener uh, and, and, and in a way quite rewarding. You know, it's nice to do good on the back of the fact that you're doing good for the sake of doing good, not because you want any recognition or reward for it. And, and that perspective is quite rewarding. But, but there's a lot of poor people in Africa who are battling at the moment. So what do you want from your leaders right now? What do you want to hear? What do you want to see? What, what's the most important thing from the leaders in South Africa? So uh, I, I, want, I want inspiration and I want hope. I think that's probably the two things we, we need most. Um, how do you provide inspiration and hope at a time like this is probably the big question because the reality is as much as there's a whole lot of data to look at now from a COVID perspective, I don't know if anyone really knows what the best way of dealing with this pandemic is. Is it better that we let it run its course and we go through the Spanish flu and the Ebola and people die and we move on and we move forward and 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 unfortunately, you know, we just account for those debts and, and we live with those debts, but we save the economies or do we find this balancing act, which I think is what most leaders have tried to do where you, you try and work within the confines of trying to save an economy without exposing too many, too much of the population to too hot, the harsh reality that some of the, the people are going to die. And, you know, we live in Africa where a lot of people have comorbidities, whether it is tuberculosis or HIV or um, diabetes, you know, we, we, we have a large portion of our population who are exposed. If they get COVID, they, they are going to have major issues and, and we've tried to flatten the curve. But the other side, Nick, in, in Africa, we are not a disciplined bunch. Um, we have double standards here. Um, certain elements of the population are going about life as if COVID does not even exist. Um, others are locked up and safe and it's through personal choice more so than anything else. The policies are there, everyone knows what the policies are. So when you ask what can our leaders do, I mean, it's a real tough one. I, I think they have to find a balance between not putting more people out of work and out of employment um, because the long-term effects of that are catastrophic for us as a country, we're already a poor country, um, but also protecting the aged and those who have these, these issues that we will have to deal with. You know, and the hospitals are starting to fill up now um, the hospitals, for a period when they unlocked alcohol, the hospitals filled up with violent crime and gender-based violence and motor car accidents. So they've locked down alcohol again to try and free up those beds for COVID patients and rightly so, but it's a very fine balance at the moment. So so when, so to say, what do we want from our leaders? It's hmm. such a complex answer, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. But, but, but I, want to, I want our president, who's been disappointing in the last two months to stand up and say, we're doing the best we can. This is how many people we're trying to look after. This is what we're doing. We've raised this money. We're distributing it in the way we said we would, which is not happening. We are stomping on corruption and crime and nepotism. We are making sure the money goes to those who need it across the board. And we're trying to keep our economy going. And, and right now we probably, we don't quite have the support from our government to that extent. The president to the captain. There it is, Francois Pinar, and Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. A sea of flags, wonderful moment for the whole of South Africa. Joel, take us back to 
1995, 25 years ago. Can you believe that? Um, you, you were part of a time and a moment that will be remembered as one of the leadership masterstrokes of the 20th century. Nelson Mandela's understanding of what winning that Rugby World Cup might mean for a new South Africa. Um, with the benefit of those 25 years, it was a remarkable stroke of leadership. It was unbelievable. And 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 I think it was courageous. You know, I think um, you asked earlier about what do we want from our leaders. I think sometimes the tough decisions you have to make and and they are tough because they, they have consequences and it takes great courage to make those decisions. And in 1995, Madiba made that courageous decision to support this 100% white rugby team when we kicked off Rugby World Cup. In a, in a period of uncertainty, a period where the ANC had just taken over, period where there was um, you know, real uncertainty around the future of our country, how would the white people be treated, how would the Africana nation stand up, would, you know, would there be hatred and civil war, um, how would we integrate all elements of society. He stepped up and made a real tough decision threw his weight behind a sports team and used sport to unite a nation. And that was an unbelievably courageous decision. It was very insightful. It was bold because he he, he got criticized harshly with inside the ANC for, for doing it. Um, but it was a it was a decision that worked. And I, to your to your point, you know, I don't think it was about so much about winning the World Cup when this when the journey started. It was about using the journey of the sports team to bring people together. The fact that we got to the final was probably a bonus. The fact that we actually won the final was a massive bonus. Um, and, and it maybe justified his decision because he, he he propelled all South Africans to be winners as opposed to just one minority portion of the population. Um, but the way he used sport was probably the, the most incredible thing and a, and a lesson for all of us. Well, there's that, that famous quote, isn't there, that sport has the power to change the world, it has the power to inspire, it has the power to unite people in a way that little yeah. else does. I mean, that's that's so synonymous now with Nelson Mandela. But when did you first understand what was at stake? So I, I would love to say that we as players were wise enough at the time to know what was at stake. But I, I, I think the reality is we're a bunch of a young, robust rugby players who wanted to play the game. We wanted to, we wanted to, um, you know, match up to the best in the world, and we wanted to do the best we possibly could at the Rugby World Cup on our shores in front of our our fans, our friends, our family, and, and, and our loved ones, you know, and I, th I think probably only in years after Rugby World Cup, and I know the older we get, the wiser we get, and as I sit here now, 25 years later, and geez, it's hard to believe we're 25 <laughs> years older already, but uh, but I think I was only, I was two at the time, John, I was two, I was two nah, years old. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was only 14 as well, yeah. Um, I think it's only now in later life that you realize the real significance of, of that time. You know, when you're able to look back with a wiser, older head and, and, and realize what was going on behind the scenes. At the time, there were things that made us realize there was more at stake than just, you know, rugby. We learned the new national anthem, which was brand new. We did some coaching in the townships. We had, you know, a large portion of, of black followers um, that, that, that grew to love this team. And especially when Chester Williams came back into the side, um, so, so there was a bit more at stake, and 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 of course, SA Rugby. Edward Griffiths coined the, the the little adage "one team, one country," which we live by. Um, so, so there was a little bit of an understanding. But as I said, you know, the older you get, the wiser you get, and the the, the older we we've, we've got, the more we've realised what a what a role we and I, and I and I'd say this: 
we didn't play the role. We played the game and Madiba used us in playing his role. You know, we enabled or we helped him to, uh, to use sport as a conduit to bring people together. What a wonderful thing to be able to say, though, that, uh, that you were part of that process. Your captain, Francois Pina, um, his role obviously is um, well documented. Um, his leadership at the time, though, was there something that set him apart? I mean, was there something special about Francois as a leader? Um, so he's a great orator and he's a great speaker and he's a wise guy. He's a very bright guy. So yes, there is something that sets him aside. But I think what set us aside as a unit was our collective leadership. You know, we had Mornay Duplessis as our manager and, and the wisest, most loving man, the most, wisest, most loving rugby man that you can imagine. You know, like he became like a fatherly figure, older brother to all of us, including including probably to Kitch Christie. And they hadn't worked together before the Rugby World Cup, and, and yet they formed this incredible bond and this leadership skill set. Kitch himself was um, a very different leader, you know, not, not a man who said much, uh, quite abrupt at times, um, but a man with a vision and a strategy and who understood people and got the best out of people as individuals and as a collective, which is important in a team environment. And then, of course, Francois, who was, was you know, our, our leader within the team environment. So, so it, it was a. It, there was so much more to it than just saying, "Was Francois the the be all and the end all as as a captain?" I think what what propelled us was this collective bunch of wise heads. What was it about Kitch in the way that he empowered people, that he understood people, that uh, that he was able to just break down that that human nature? So, so I've, I've come to realize in a game, the older we get, the wiser we get, the more we found a way to, to maybe put these things into words and, and to understand it. I've come to realize the critical thing is perspective. And, and, and I think Kitch understood that all along. You know, he was a really wise guy. He understood everyone's point of view. He understood every little dynamic from each perspective. And I think that's why he got the best out of everyone. He, uh, he knew that, for example, um, James Small was a different character. James Small, and God bless him, we, he was a roommate of mine and a dear friend. Um, but James had, James was different. James lived by night and slept by day. Um, but he, but, but he, when, when he trained and when he played the game, it was all heart, all passion, all dedication, and he delivered. Um, if I had tried to live the life of James Small, I would never have been able to de- deliver. You know, so so I think Kitch understood how to get up, get the best out of James Small. He, understood how to how to bring the best out of English speaking Joel Stransky and how to bring the best out of Afrikaans speaking different cultured Francois Pinot and even for that matter out of Chester Williams and every single individual in the group as well as the coaching staff so so I think that was probably the most important but he understood people unbelievably well he knew where the line was and he, he got the best out of people and then strategically he was just incredible attention to detail um, and and, and, and I, I mean, I don't want to digress too much, but in the build-up to the Rugby World Cup, we we flew up, the guys who were coastal based, we used to come up to Johannesburg every Monday. We had a day from hell. If I tell you, I still probably hate, Mondays are definitely Blue Mondays because of Kitch Christie. We, um, we used to fly up, we used to start training in the morning at about 9 or 9.30. It was about a seven-hour training session with a break for drinks and a break for lunch and, and then a break for tea. Of, of which of that seven hours, probably three or four hours was fitness training. And and the one evening, just as we were finishing up, I was busy doing my sit-ups and I was, I was dying a thousand deaths. And um, I opened my eyes and he was standing over me and he chuckled and laughed. And I said to him, 
I said to the coach, you know, we're doing all this fitness um, and, and, and it's great. I didn't want to say it was really bad because it was, I was dying. But I said, it's really great. Um, I said, but, but surely the most skillful team will win the Rugby World Cup and we need to work more on, on, on the skills part now. He said, no, my boy, the fittest team will win the World Cup. And, and I think that was probably a little lesson, not so much around having to be the fittest. I think it was a lesson that you need to be the fittest team to win a World Cup because of injuries, because of, um, you know, all those other hurdles that come your way, the, the ability to recover quicker if you are fitter, um, let alone extra time in a, in a World Cup final. But I think it was about hard work. It was about saying, you know, if you put in the hours and you work your, your butt off, You'll get the results, and, uh, and 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 that inspired and drove all of us to to a whole nother element of of hard work, and on the back of hard work comes self belief, and um, because the more you do something, the better you get, get it. At the more you believe you can do it, you know. So so it was this whole like upward spiral story that that Kitch created in in our environment. And as I said earlier, you know, he didn't he didn't say a whole lot, but he understood how to get the be- the best out of us, and he understood how to make us believe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What you were saying about uh, different people within the team and, and you know, used Funda Vestas and, you, you know, at Scrum Half, you at 10, different backgrounds, but... The great combination. I mean, no one's won a World Cup without a great nine and a great ten combination. Tell me about um, how different you were, yet what a good partnership you made. So we were worlds apart, and, and when we started playing together in that setup, and you know, a year or so earlier, I, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't tough. It was, it was hard, and there was, and there were probably times where frustrating and. But I think when you when you get through the cultural barrier and you get to know someone, you get to understand them, and you get to appreciate them, um, it, all, it obviously becomes a lot a lot easier. What what was really easy with Yurst, um, he said he was just so good. He was just he he was a, he was a really good scrum off, and I say really good. He probably wasn't the best scrum off that ever graced the fields of of rugby because his pass every now and then let him down. You know, he threw the odd wild one. Um, I used to tease him, and I used to, I used to joke with him and say, "I am, I am the Peter Schmeichel or Schmeichel of flowers because I've got to do all, I've got to catch them all over the show every now and then." <laughs> Goalkeeper stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and we used to laugh about it. Um, and he also he never he kicked off the left foot, which for a scrum off is also problematic from set phase. Um, but as a rugby player, as a as as a game breaker, absolutely. One of one of the greatest that's ever graced the fields, you know. So, so knowing how good he was, knowing what a handful he was for the opposition, knowing how much pressure he could take off you just by being there, you know, made it so easy to play with him in so many other ways. Um, and 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 that was a, that was a joy because you could I could look at him and we you know we grew to understand each other. I could look at him and I would know what he was going to do. And I think when I then overruled and called and said, "Listen, send me the ball," he knew that I didn't do that often. That that there was something urgent that he needed to, you know, make a change. So, so that understanding grew and became um, one of uh, of great respect. And and I think you know a lot of almost brotherly love, you know, in his 
latter years, I saw a fair bit of him in, in the wheelchair. And even then, even when he couldn't speak, I could, we used to, you know, we could look at each other and know what we were thinking and have a laugh and, and, and find a way to find humour in a tough situation. Even at the end, he was uh, such an inspiration to so many people. Just tell me, the moment that Nelson Mandela, on that day at Ellis Park in Johannesburg, and, and he went into the, the dressing room beforehand, is that right? He did, yeah, he did. So he came He came to see us even before the start of the World Cup. He came um, to Silver Mine, which was where we were training in, the, in Cape Town before we played Australia in the opening game. Um, he flew in in his helicopter and he came and you know, had tea with us and, and spoke to us about um, and said to us he would ensure we had the support of the whole nation. And, and it was completely inspiring. And, and then on the day of the final, he, um, I always laugh and joke about him. And I tell the story, I, I tell about... I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld when Kramer bursts into the room, he flings yes. the door open and and struts in and slides in. Like I always say, this massive bodyguard did that. The door flung open and this guard came in. And anyway, and then Madiba came in in the Springbok shirt. And you know, I think um, an hour and 20 minutes or whatever it was before the game, I think you're probably nervous. You, you know, probably, maybe the nerves are subsiding because you're already getting dressed and strapping and you, you're already in the stadium which for me was um, where the nerves, you know, dis- disappeared. I was more nervous in the mornings. Um, but he came into the change room and as, again, you know, if, you, if you're not inspired and motivated for a Rugby World Cup final, then you, you know, you probably shouldn't be there in the first place. But to have this unbelievable man come into the change room um, and touch you with his magic and, and, and in years following that, it became known as the Madiba magic. Um, to come in there and just, you know, Blessed you with his uh, his his being um, it was just incredible, and he, and he said a few words, and then he came around and shook our hands and had one or two private messages for some of us that were very specific to our roles, and for me it was about generaling the game and the decision making and the leadership, and you know just uh, it wasn't just a go forth and conquer. It was a real genuine, inspired little bit of message that um, picked us up and drove us forward. The wonderful thing about all of that, Joel, is that, uh, you know, you, you obviously met him and, and knew him, but I get the impression he knew every step of that way uh, what he was doing. He, he knew what strings he was pulling. He, he maybe didn't have it all planned out, but he knew the journey he was taking with you. I, I, think, he, um, I think he probably, I think he did have it planned out. I think maybe he's, he had plan A, B and C, depending on how far we went in the World Cup. But I think he did have it planned out. So um, I, I think he thought quite carefully about, about how he could use this predominantly white Afrikaner sport to, to, um, to win their hearts and, uh, and, and bring a, a nation together. And I think it wasn't so much about saying to the ANC and the black supporters, you know, you guys need to go and support rugby. I think for him it was about saying we need a peaceful transition um, for us as a country where we have nine different cultures and 11 official languages um we, we we need to we need to find a way to you know work together live together in a peaceful environment and i think that was his way of saying this is how i can bring a large portion of the white population into into a, a, a mishmash of, of, a, of a cultural country and um, i think he did think it through i think he did plan it i think he was I think he was really wise. You know, I had the privilege of going to his, his house and my wife and I and, and having lunch with just him um, at the dining room table and and just chatting and and listening to his stories and listening to his wisdom. 
And I think when, when, when you realize after that experience, and I look back, I think he probably did think it out. I think he was a, a wise man who thought things through and understood each scenario and, and assessed the risk and went forth with a plan. In a sense, that makes it even more remarkable. And, and then in Japan last mm. year, there you were 24 years after your triumph and South Africa collects another Rugby World Cup and, and a Springbok yeah. side captained by a black man, Sia Khaleesi. Yeah. Um, firstly, what did you feel in that moment? Um, so I think there's two elements to that. One, I mean, one is great elation as, as a South African rugby player to win the Rugby World Cup again is um, obviously just incredibly special and our third victory. So, so, so winning was special. But, but you know, it then became quite comparable to 1995 because we as a nation, we, um, we have our issues. We, uh, we have our differences. We have factions in our communities that want to divide and conquer. We have massive... Um, fraud and corruption issues. We have this constant fight between good and bad. And, 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 and then you have a team that came together under this incredible man, and I'll come back to Sierra in just a second, that, that again played a role of uniting a nation and bringing people together. Is, and even, even more so because, because rugby now is a sport for everyone. You know, it's, um, it's a properly multicultural sport. And, and if you go and watch rugby at schoolboy level, um, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know you know, that there was a racial divide 30 years ago. You know, it's, um, it is a properly multicultural sport and, and, and it's more so at grassroots than, than I suppose at, at provincial level, but it is, it is getting there. So, so it played a, a role again, but, but just Sio Khaleesi, and I, and I think he's the critical thing here, you know, I had the privilege. And in fact, it was probably 18 months ago after spending some time with you in Australia, then going down to um, New Zealand and South Africa beat the All Blacks I think we drew with Australia in Brisbane, and then we yeah. we beat the All Blacks in uh, in Wellington. Um, and I sat next to Sia on the flight home, and and I got to chat to him not for for the full eighteen hours or whatever it was because we slept a bit, but I got to chat quite a lot to him. I mean, what an incredible man! You know, when you understand his story and his background, the fact that he came from extreme poverty where he didn't know where his next meal was coming from, he didn't know whether to have his one meal in the morning so he could focus at school or have it after at lunch so he could go to rugby training. Um, you know, then you understand what, when I say earlier on, we want hope and inspiration. There is a man whose example gives you hope and, and inspires you to want to be better and to, to achieve something special as a South African, as a member of our society and as a member of our country. Um, just the most incredible man. And, and what I loved about him, in that camp 18 months ago, I mean, I already from then had a feeling we would do well at the World Cup. And in fact, I, I thought we would win it um, because we played a game plan that was also conducive to Rugby World Cup. But we had the makeup of a wise coaching staff, a great leader, strong you know, game plan. Um, and, and, and there was a bit more to it. But what I loved about Sia's leadership style, it was all inclusive. He didn't stand there like some leaders and say, I'm the captain. He, he said, we're all captains. Um, he relied on the senior players to lead with him. You know, the likes of Dwayne Vermeulen and Andre Pollard, um, the, you know, the, the experienced players, the Vili LaRue's to, to step up. Um, you know, he, he wanted the joint leadership for, for want of a better way of describing it. And, and, and I think that is what empowered that team to go on and achieve something great. And, and, and if you have strong leadership being led by a man who, who 
is so inspirational. You know, you are you are set on a great track. You set on a great journey to achieve success. I interviewed uh, his school coach um, from his college uh, in Port Elizabeth um, just after the World Cup, and he told a story that Sia actually realised at a very young age the influence that he could have, and he was going to college by day, and then when he would go back into the the township. The other kids from the township who were also attending the college would change their uniform. They'd change back into their civvies because they didn't want to be seen as different walking walking through the township. Whereas Sia said, no, I, I'm going to walk through the township in my school uniform because yep. he, he viewed it as a way of giving hope to the other kids um, who, who may have been able to take that path as well. And that was like as a 14 or 15-year-old. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. And in fact, um, there is a, there's an organization in South Africa that uses that exact model to, um, and I'm not sure whether they learned it from Sia or what he did or whether it's purely coincidence, but I mean, the vision of Sia to do that, they use, they use that ex- exact model to change society. And, and the whole concept around that is that if you can have a, a group of leaders in a school environment um, from all sectors of the environment. So they have in that group of leaders that they select, they have one or two really bright kids. They have one or two sporting kids. They have a couple of kids from the gangs and the drug side, the bad kids, bring them all together. And then they they mold them. They try and mold them into, into leaders of society. And then they send them out to go and spread the word and lead inside their families, inside their communities, inside the society. And it's almost, it's almost like, um, like, a, I don't know, like a, I don't want to say a Ponzi scheme, but it is a, it's a Tupperware model that it just permeates out and grows and grows and spreads. And, and that was really Sia's model, wasn't it? It was about saying, you know, this is who I am. I'm, I'm proud of what I am and, and join me on my journey. And, and that's how he's captained the Springboks. Incredible. Is there a, a thought that he'd make a good politician one day? So I actually asked him, I asked him on that flight 18 months ago. I said, uh, you know, the politics is, um, is obviously an issue in this country. Have, have the parties contacted you? Because I'd imagine that of course. that uh, the parties would be queuing up to try and get him involved. He said they all had. He said the ANC had got in touch with them. The EFF had got in touch with them. The DA had got in touch with them. He said all three of the major parties had, had, were trying to swing him. And, and I said, well, what's, you know, what's your view? He said, it's really quite simple. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a rugby player. I'm captain of a, a national rugby team. I'm not, I don't subscribe to one party. I'm South African for now and, and I'm not going to get involved in politics. But I would imagine post-rugby, there would, there would have to be a strong leadership role for him somewhere in an environment where he can inspire masses and masses of people. A little bit of deja vu about all of that, isn't there? Um, and, and Joel, for you outside of rugby, you've had great success in business. Um, I'm really interested to know your leadership principles. So you've talked about all these other great leaders. You must have soaked a lot up over time. What What are your non-negotiables in your business life when it comes to leadership? Sure. So, um, so I mean, you have to define success. We have we have a big business, but we haven't we haven't realised any great profits yet. So, so hopefully one day we will. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. So, I, I for me, the the, the overriding factor is um, is people. I think. Um, you know, you've got to have a good strategy and you've got to have a decent idea. But, but for me, there's, there's two underlying factors that I've, that I've lived by in business. The one is you can have 
a great idea, a brilliant concept, you can have average people and you'll fail. Um, you can have an average idea and you can have strong, great people and you'll succeed. So for me, it is all about the people. And it's about keeping your people inspired. It's about, it's about keeping them involved. It's about empowering them to make decisions. And so, so the way we manage our businesses, in all our businesses, we have, um, we have shareholders who either run the business or are key decision makers in the business. We, we've diluted our shares to include certain members of our staff, not everyone, but, but the, the people we need to keep inside our group. Um, and then we have, we have strong um, bonus structures. So, so you, if this may surprise you, I have not had a salary increase or a dividend or a bonus since we started the business eight years ago, and, and, and neither have my my partners. So, so we know we're building something big, but but for us, most importantly, it's it's to keep our people engaged. And so, so I think that would be lesson lesson number one. You know, make sure your 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 those people on the floor who are who are helping you drive your business are engaged. And then secondly, there is a chap here who um, in this country you, you taught me a lesson many years ago and he's it's a real simple lesson he said don't let greed be the enemy of strategy and um and and that is the second thing we i, I, I try and instill inside our businesses is that if, if we have a plan um sometimes it takes investments sometimes you know you've got to go about the bullet for a while to get it right but but don't make short-term decisions at the expense of of your long-term strategy and um you know, we've been going for now for eight years, just over eight years. Um, we have nine businesses in our stable, one or two good, one or two good ones, one or two bad ones, one or two that you know that sort of hover in the middle. But most of the time, where we're achieving success, it's because we're achieving success because we've we've set a strategy, we've got engaged people, and we all work, work, work towards a common goal. Some good advice in there, Joel. You know how much I love talking to you. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Nick, it's been my pleasure. Always good chatting to you and uh, nice to catch up and hopefully we can catch up again soon. And how about that for a piece of advice in business or sport? Don't let greed be the enemy of strategy. Don't make short-term decisions at the expense of your long-term strategy. My guest on the Playmakers Playbook this week, Joel Stransky. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.